buckle up with this. But I'm going to just start reading, and then we'll go right in to the message. I think I want to stand up. I can't sit down with this. I tried it. can't do it. All right. The God that many of us have believed in can be described like this. This is the God that many of us have believed in growing up. He can be described like this. He is angry at our sin. He wanted to kill us because of our sin. Right before he did that, Jesus stepped in at the last minute and said, no, 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 let me die instead. And he took the killing for us. Now, because of that, God, this God, is obligated to accept those who meet the new requirements. So that's, that's most, most of our American God is that. He's angry. He wants to kill us. Wanted to. Kind of still does. But at the last minute, Jesus stepped in and said, No, I'll take it instead. And Jesus dies. If this... If this is what we have believed, then by biblical definition, we haven't been living in Christianity. We've been living in what I really believe is agnosticism that we've called Christianity. And the reason I say that is that God that I just described does not exist, never has and never will. If that's the story, this angry God ready to beat the you-know-what out of us. If that's the story, you cannot believe in the Trinity. Hey, Morgan, I didn't even see you sitting over there. What's up? If, If that's the story, you can't believe in the Trinity. What is the Trinity? The Trinity is three in one. You with me? They're all individual in their working, but they're completely one. But... In that scenario I just read, and how many of us, myself included, grew up believing, Jesus is good, the Father is bad and angry, and the Holy Spirit is constantly bouncing between the two. So so by that, if the Trinity is one, it must be the same. So, for example, many have translated Habakkuk 1.13 as saying God cannot look upon evil. Which it doesn't say that, but they've translated it that. And in the sense, in that case, what they're really saying is God can't look upon you if you sin. In the translations of Habakkuk 1.13. One problem with this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that not only Jesus looked upon sin, but that Jesus became sin. So so think about this. If the Father cannot even look upon sin, yet Jesus, the same amount of God as the Father, completely one, not only looked upon it, he became it. You've got to start slicing and dicing the Trinity because those aren't the same. So what we have to do is we have to say either there is no trinity and there's three different gods or we've completely misinterpreted the Father. I know we're starting out deep, so y'all just go with me. These two ideas cannot live in theology of the trinity. They can't. Unless Habakkuk is actually saying 
that God refuses to look upon evil. And Jesus finishes the thought by undoing the root of evil in everyone together. So, so is it God cannot look upon evil? Or is it God refuses to look at you as evil? Because in that scenario, Jesus and the Father are completely the same. When God looks at you and I, he does not see what we've done. He sees who we really are. So if you believe this idea of God, not only are Father, Son, and Spirit different and divided, but the Father himself is divided. If we see God as angry in one moment and loving in another moment, you've got to start dividing the Father himself. One side of him is loving. The other side of him, in this view, is hateful. This isn't who God is. 1 John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God. That word know, we've talked about it a lot, is experiential knowledge. So what he's really saying is, is whoever does not love has not experienced God because God is love. In other words, the only definition of love is God, and the only definition of God is love. To experience God is to experience love and vice versa. And, and just to be extremely clear, so nobody messes with what I'm saying, what I'm not talking about is being passive. So when I say, because typically this is what we say in our culture today, we'll say, well, God is love. What we really say is God is doing this. Tolerate. That's, that's not what we're talking about. That's not love. When Veda does something that she shouldn't be doing, we don't say, let's just pretend like we never saw that. No, we say, this is not who you are. You see what I'm saying? So that's love. So if this right here is what we have defined as love, not only do we have to redefine God who is love, we have to redefine love that is God. <clears throat> Maybe the church, check this out. Maybe the church hasn't loved those outside or inside for that matter. Because we've never truthfully met the God of the Bible who did not come in flesh or ask sin to appease his hate toward us, but to prove his unfailing and unfaltering love for us. Let me say this one more time. Maybe church, we, maybe we haven't loved those on the outside or on the inside because we've never met the God who is love. What does he say? He says, whoever does not love, 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love has not experienced God. So if the church isn't loving, we then have to trace that same line of thought to say, maybe we've never met who God really is. So we, we, we're in this season where it, is, it takes an amount of trust. Your birthday's tomorrow. We're going to sing you happy birthday. You walked in. <laughs> um, so we're going to do that at the end. But I'm, I'm glad to see you guys. But um, it's okay. It's okay. Um, but the, this, this, this idea of who God is, 
when, when we start to trace this down, we find ourselves in a place where we have to start deconstructing 99% of what we thought we knew. And that's why nobody wants anything to do with this. However, I, I personally have to take the journey of deconstructing things I believe about him if they're not true. Even if that means 100% of it is not true. And if it didn't root itself in God is agape, but I've got to throw it out. That's the foundation. So if I've made the foundation power, or if I've made the foundation the church, or the ministry, or whatever else, if I've made that the foundation, or let me say it like this, if I've made the foundation something another preacher said, including me, if you have made your foundation something that Josh Brown said, you need to throw it out and go right to the place of God is love and then start building from there. Okay, if God is love, then what does that mean about Jesus? What does that mean about the Trinity? What does that mean about creation? What, you know what I mean? And you start building, what does that mean about the flood? So we thought the flood was about God hating evil. What it was really about God being so in love with his creation that he was going to respawn it in righteousness in Noah. But, but all, this, all this perspective, we look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, God just hated them. Except we miss the part where Abraham begs him and he says, if you'll find this many righteous people, I'll leave it alone. So we don't talk about that. We just talk about the God who destroyed it because they were nasty. He didn't want to do that. So, so maybe, Lord, help me with this mic. Maybe we haven't loved others because we've never met a God who is love. If the God that we know is hateful, then it makes sense why most Christians in America today are hateful. I go on Facebook. Y'all wouldn't believe. When, I mean, you, you talk about a mask. And Lord, you, the church loses its mind. And I hate wearing a mask. I hate it. You know what I'm saying? But like, if, if a mask is going to cause us to hate other people, we've got a mask on, and it ain't the one you put over your nose. It's the one you've put over who God really is. That was, that was so dad thing, so, you know, whatever. But um, if you experience the God who is love, you cannot help but mirror that to the rest of the family, which is the human race, whom it was also proved to on the cross. Even, even, me, even me mentioning everybody in humanity being family just now made something kick back in a lot of people. The fam family, they're our enemies. They're, they're not your enemies. The argument that we should be having is not about truth. The argument we should be having is about why we see God as something other than what He is, which is love, and why we look so little like His love. I, we, we, we should not, we're not in any place, any way, shape, or form, in any place that we should be arguing truth right now in America, in, in no denomination and in no church. Truth, we don't know who God is. Well, well, brother, I'm, brother, it's all about truth. No, 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 no. It's all about God is love. Until you get that, you can't put your hands on truth. Because if you get to truth any other way than this, God is love, you haven't found truth. 
you found religion. And that's why so many people are living in a religion they call Christianity that has no idea, not only who God is, but if they don't know who God is, they don't know who Jesus really is. We think Jesus came to show us power. He came to show us who the Father really was. And the way to do that, he was going to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. But he didn't come just so he could cleanse the sick, raise the, raise the dead, and cleanse the lepers. He came so that he could make the announcement, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The one that you thought was waiting with lightning bolts ready to demolish you the moment you mess up is not who he is. I am who he is. That's what he came to do. And in order to do that, he had to call all the sick that religion had rejected to himself and make it right that religion should have been doing all along. The equivalent to that today is not cancer being healed, even though we'll see cancer healed. But the equivalent to what Jesus was doing in his day today is us going to people like homosexuals and saying, you have been kicked out of the church, but you're welcome. Let me Again, that does not mean we're going to do this. Oh, Lord, make it stop. You know, that's not what we're going to do, right? We're going to say, I know who you are, and you're going to be in the family until you believe who you are. Do you see what I'm saying? That's sticky, it's nasty, and it's, but that's what Jesus did. Those are the ones rejected by religion. The people with cancer aren't rejected by religion today. But the leprous ones in Jesus' day were rejected by religion, which is why he goes to them. He doesn't go to them just so he can say, abracadabra, guess who I am? He goes to them because they were rejected. But today we reject those everybody else are rejecting and go find the ones that we can say abracadabra for so we can show everybody our power. <laughs> I can say that because I grew up Pentecostal. That's what we did. And we saw amazing healings. We saw amazing, amazing, miraculous healings. But a lot of those people aren't in church today. So if we started, if we started with us knowing who God was and then bring on all the miracle signs and wonders, guess what? You have miracle signs and wonders proving who God is, which is love, rather than miracle signs and wonders proving how much power we got. Okay. Any truth that you get to without the love of God without the love of God, at the root is insufficient at best and a lie at worst. So, let me do this for the fun of it. This is what I've been waiting for. I'm going to read uh, the difference between, our, honestly, an American version of God and the early church's version of God. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a portion of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, which is, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, first. And then I'm going to read Athanasius' writing from uh, right around 300 A.D., so a couple of generations removed from the early church in Acts. And I want you to hear the difference in this. So here we go. This is Jonathan Edwards. Let me give you a little reminder if you missed history class. Um, so Jonathan Edwards, he lived from 1703 to 1758. Uh, he was highly influenced by the Enlightenment period, which... In my opinion, the Enlightenment period did more damage to Christianity than any other period in history. That, the Enlightenment is when the, the West, particularly America and the French, said that we want to push God into outer space. We want to keep all the good morals of Christianity, grace, hope, love, you know, all that stuff. We want to keep all that stuff. 
God, you go into outer space. We're going to run the world like we think we need to run it, and we'll call on you if we need you. That was the Enlightenment period. And so in the Enlightenment period, you have things like the um, Jefferson Bible that came out. If you look up the Jefferson Bible, um, he, Thomas Jefferson, took out all the accounts of the prophetic. He took out the resurrection. He took out any angelic encounter. He took out all that stuff and left the faith, hope, love, joy, all that stuff, and released it during this Enlightenment period as a translation of the Bible. So this is where the Enlightenment period was. Well, Jonathan Edwards was highly influenced by this Enlightenment period, and he led the First Great Awakening. Well, bro, we just need another awakening. I don't know if we do. I think we need the First Great Awakening. Because I'm starting to question if the first two even awakened anything. So here we go. Jonathan Edwards, this is what he said. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I've just got so many, so many issues with the title. Um, I, I could say sin, uh, sinners in the hands of angry sinners. Or Jesus in the hands of angry humans. Um, I, but anyway, this is what he said. And, and I quote, The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Hey, guys, what's up? So let me just, just, just for the fun of it, let me just read this one more time, okay? Seriously, as I read this, I want you to think about, this is an American, highly influential pastor in America, Jonathan Edwards, okay? Some people are coming in, so I just wanted to wait until they came in so I don't get interrupted. Hey, okay, so here we go. Y'all focus in. One more time. The bow, listen, see, see how close this is to some of the gods that, the, the God that you and I knew growing up. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Jonathan Edwards, First Great Awakening. Now, y'all tell me, y'all tell me, well, well, let me just read this. Let me just read this. Athanasius, on the other hand, lived 296 to 373 A.D. Gregory of uh, Nicenius, excuse me, these Greek words are kind of hard to say sometimes, but he called him the pillar of the church and is famous, he, uh, Athanasius, is famous for writing and his understanding of the incarnation, Jesus. That's, that's kind of what he was known for in the early church. So this is what he writes. Now remember, this is just like two generations removed from the early church. Okay, so it's still early church age. He says about the death of Jesus, It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. As then 
the creatures whom he created were on the road to ruin. What then was God being good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, in that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning at all? Surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and to perish. Now let's check this out. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness, but God in limitation. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by the corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. So what he says right there, where I paused, he says, all that, then being, us being left to, to our ruin and all that stuff, would not have proved that God was good. Because th- that's the argument today. Well, if God is good, let people ruin themselves. He, get, he was good. He gave him the choice. Athanasius says, no, that's not describing goodness. That's describing limitation. In other words, God is incapable of undoing the evil that we caused, and therefore he lets it go. So here's the difference. Jonathan Edwards, 1,400 years apart. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, Athanasius, 1,400 years. In 1,400 years, this right here is the distortion of the gospel. We must go backward, not forward. The different Jonathan Edwards is saying Jesus came because God was so angry and so mad that he bent his bow of destruction that was going to be made drunk on your nasty blood. So that's why Jesus got the snot beat out of him. And not only that, when he was getting the snot beat out of him, God turned his back because he couldn't even look at him. That's what Jonathan Edwards said. Athanasius says... No. Jesus came because God so loved the world, he refused to leave them in their ruin. Do you see the difference? One of those, Edwards, if you read the rest of his stuff, don't do that. But if you do, Edwards is trying to win people to the Lord by way of scaring them out of hell. Athanasius is trying to tell people about the Lord without regard of the undoing that Jesus did on the cross and instead proving to people the love that the Father had for them no matter what they did. That difference would save America right now. If every church in America made the decision today, instead of winning people by way of scaring them, Because by the way, if you win people, if people repeat the prayer because they're running from hell, they're not saved. Let's just be very clear. Salvation is saying yes to covenant, not no to something scary. So so if somebody says, we used to do this at Halloween, where we would have the the, um, haunted house in the church, which was very fitting. If anybody's watching this, I'm sorry for saying that. It's offensive. But anyway, but uh, but we had the haunted house in the church. It was real easy to do. And... um, so you'd go through the haunted house, you'd see all these you know, scary things and all that stuff, and at the end you'd come up and the pastor would be standing there and he would basically say, if you don't want to go through that the rest of your life, repeat this prayer. 
I, am, I, am I lying? And, um, and so, because we, we were a part of it. I mean, we, we, we played the main role sometimes, you know. And um, <laughs> scare, I mean, literally, it's like scare people as much as you can so that they repeat the prayer at the end. And we had hundreds, hundreds repeat the prayer. It was our best soul-winning day, which is, I mean, it, which is, I, I can't even begin to talk about it. But, but, but that, that's like, do you see this? So they weren't getting saved into a covenant. They were getting saved because they were scared out of their mind. And Jesus did not come and say, I'll beat the snot out of you unless you repeat this prayer. Jesus came and said, I'll do it for you. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And even after doubting, Thomas, for example, is like, man, I don't, I don't know if this is, man, this, this seems like a lot. And Jesus doesn't say, well, if you don't believe, then get out because you're not a part of me. He says, you know what? If that's not enough, come touch me. Do, do you see this? Peter goes back to fishing because it's all over. He goes back to fishing. Jesus is dead. They guessed it wrong. He goes back to fishing. Jesus does not show up and say, Peter, you've lost your mind. You cursed. I mean, Peter literally cussed. We'd kick people out today for just doing what he did, for cussing, which is why everybody has to pretend like they don't. But, <laughs> but he, he, show, he shows up on the shore, and Peter comes back, and he doesn't say, he doesn't say, Peter, you really jacked us up. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he's not saying that saying like, Peter, like, do you love me? He's saying, no, Peter, I desire your love. What do I need to do to get you to love me? How do we know that? Because he asked him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah. Then feed my sheep. But Peter, no, do you love me? Who is God to look at man and want his affection? He didn't demand Peter to repeat a prayer and then buy into this kingdom thing. He said, Peter, I want you. So, so Edwards, American Christianity is that. It's God hates us to death, but Jesus stepped in and now he's obligated to love us. And that love is very fragile that you could break at any moment. This is how we believe. The early church believed that God's love could not be touched by what we did because it was accomplished not by what we did, but by what Jesus did while we were still sinners. So how, how do we get to this? How, how do we get to while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but then also get to the place where we believe our sin can undo what he did for us while we were in our sin? Do you see how this stuff doesn't add up? He, while we were still sinners, he died on our behalf. Yet, in the same sentence, we'll also say, the same paragraph will also say, yet, if I sin, I'm no longer a part of this. Your, your perfection didn't earn that. Your sin earned it. Je Jesus did not say, for God so hated the world that he beat Jesus to a pulp so that now a handful of people who repeat the prayer can get out just in time before God explodes in anger at his creation. Let me just say this one more time because some of the prayers we repeated. Jesus did not say, for God, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he doesn't say, for God so hated everybody that he's going to beat me to a pulp 
so that a handful who repeat a prayer, magical prayer, can get out just before God explodes everything into smithereens and starts over. No. He says, For God so loved that He poured out His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son. Now, this is Jesus saying this, by the way. So sometimes we quote this stuff thinking like, oh man, John wrote the gospel. No, he's quoting Jesus saying this. So Jesus is looking at Nicodemus saying, God did not send me into the world to condemn it, but that through me all this might be saved. Very different. In this Americanized thinking of God, Jesus did not come to change us. I want you to hear this. In this, in this way of thinking, he didn't come to change us. Jesus came to change God. In how we think. In how we think, Jesus did not come to change who we were. Jesus came to change who God was. He came to make a hateful God appeased in our normal thinking. He didn't come to set us free. He came so that he could hold back the anger of God over us. Let me ask you this. Who wants to go be with a God for eternity that if he had his druthers would strike you in anger? That's a serious question. And I don't have, I don't have a problem talking about this because this God doesn't exist. We're just talking about idols at this point. Who, who, who wants to do that? That's why people are running from the church. Now, people, people are not running from church or God, just to be clear. They're running from our mythological being that we pushed as God. You, do, do you ever notice that those who have left the church, all of them cry out for love? Do you ever notice that? If you talk to somebody who's been hurt by the church, at some point in that conversation, because I've had thousands of them since we started this church, at some point in that conversation, they will say something to the effect of, I just wish they could have loved me. Now, whether or not they have the right definition of love is a whole other thing. But the point is, is that their DNA is saying, I was made for he who is love. And they came in to experience he who is love and instead experienced he who is hate that has to love you because of what Jesus did now. They did not find the God who is love in our churches. But, this revelation will transform our cities when people encounter a God who does not say, I'm obligated to reward your good behavior, but he does say, you are my kid in whom I am well pleased. Now that I've made everybody uncomfortable. Hebrews 1. And um, y'all, but I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who grew up on the other end of the spectrum. I, I grew up. I told, I told kids, I had gum. So when I was in high school, gum was like a high commodity. You know, if you had a piece of gum, it was like you were, you were so cool. And, uh, and if you ever made the mistake of getting that pack out in class, you never had gum again. And, um, but I, so I was like, this is my gum. Like, Josh, you got any gum? No. Had a whole full packet. But I get home, go in my room. I said, Lord, I, please just come into my heart. I told that lie. I, I kid you not. Like, I mean, it's funny now. But as a kid, do, do you know what damage that did to my view of God? 
God, come, like I lost my salvation for lying about having a piece of gum. But that's how fickle I saw God. That he was so mad that the moment I messed up, he was like, thank you, now I can hate you again. That was my, that's my, that was my God growing up. I read my Bible not because I wanted to learn about the one I was in covenant with. I read my Bible because I thought I was going to get left out of heaven or the rapture if I didn't read my Bible. I'd walk around my house, and if I didn't hear my parents for 10 minutes, I thought they, the rapture happened, and I was left because I lied about having a piece of gum. But that, that's 90% of American Christianity today. Man, man, the world, the world inflation is getting bad. Thank you, Lord, we're about to get out of here. And the Lord's saying, maybe, maybe some of my people should reign in such a way that the economy begins to respond to you. But, but we can't do that if we're sitting around waiting to leave. Three generations have been sitting around waiting to leave, and you see where our world is today. That is not a knock on anybody, but that's just reality. Do you see this? And I say three, it's more like ten. But finally, a generation, and mainly I'm talking about the ones in this room, if I'm being honest with you, and a handful of other places. But a generation is finally starting to sit down and say, wait a minute, what if we're here? We've never talked about that. It's, well, we got we to go. we got to get all these people saved. The best way to get people saved is if we tell them how bad hell is. Then they'll repeat the prayer, and then if the rapture happens in the morning, at least we'll get a handful out. Nobody has had the grace to sit around and say, but what if we're here for 500 years? What if 500, well, no, the rapture is only a 200-year-old thing. So, so what if 200 years ago, what if, so what if 200 years ago, that's, I mean, that's, that, that was legit, that's a factual thing. But what if 200 years ago, when Darby was pushing this heretical theology around, and Schofield picked it up while he, while, um, read the book, my book's coming out. But I don't want to distract people in here from what we're talking about today, because I was about to. But, but what if when that was happening, and they're saying, boys, buckle up, we gone, we're out of here, let the world go crazy. What if, what if they sat around and said, in 250 years, there's going to be a group of people in Columbia, South Carolina, that are trying to find who this God really is. What do we need to do today to make sure in 250 years this thing is upheld? If that had happened, we would not be in the mess we're in today. So we, we in our generation, have to make the decision. Are we going to sit around on our thumbs and hope that we leave? Or are we going to plan to reign in his creation if we're here for another 5,000 years? Because guess what? Even if he comes tomorrow, we're going to be here for eternity. I love, I love talking about early church theology because it's so different than American theology. Uh, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, I'm going to read the first three verses, and then I'm going to jump to Hebrews 2. Um, so here we go. Hebrews 1, starting at verse 1, it says this. Y'all good? Everybody good? Okay. Throughout our history, uh, God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. 
The revelation he gave them was only a fragment at a time, building one truth upon another. But to us, you and I, living in these days, God now speaks to us openly in the language of a son. The appointed heir of everything, for through him, check this out, through him, God created the panorama of all things and all time. The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. He holds the universe together and expands it by the mighty power of his spoken word. Now check this out right here. He accomplished for us the complete cleansing of our sin. If it says sins in your Bible, so not the right train, it's sin, uh, singular. It's the Greek word. He accomplished for us the complete cleansing of sin and then took his seat on the highest throne at the right hand of the majestic one. What a way to start a book, you know what I'm saying? Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Jesus is the word, John calls him. He's exactly what God has to say about himself. In verse 3, he, it says right here, he's the exact expression, or the Passion Translation says, the mirror image of God. So when you see Jesus, you see the Godhead. Y'all with me? So anything that you know about God the Father that doesn't go through God, Jesus Christ, the Son, you need to go back and go through Jesus to know anything about the Father and the Spirit. This is God's Word. When, it said, when John says that, he's saying this is how God has made himself known through Jesus. Which means if you know anything about God without Jesus, you don't know anything about God. Okay. In verse 3, verse 3, I just read this. It says, he accomplished for us, for us, the complete cleansing of our sin. And then he took his seat at the right hand of the majestic one. Sins, just to reiterate this, I've been talking about this for three weeks is hemartia, it's one sin. So it's not a bunch of different acts of sins. It's the root of sin, which is the fall, when it says that. So he has complete, accomplished for us the complete cleansing of the fall, you could say. You with me? It's really way better news than a bunch of acts. Um, cleansing, the word cleansing right there is the Greek uh, katharismos. And uh, I'm trying to say that in my little Greek slang, but that's probably not the right word. But that, that word cleansing means to purge. It means to remove what should not be there. Okay, let me just say this one more time because that was real good. All right, straight out of the lexicon. He accomplished for us the complete cleansing of our sin. Complete cleansing is purge. The, the meaning of that is to remove what should not be there. So if you fill your engine with diesel, which people have done, um, I don't know how because it doesn't fit, but anyway, um, but if you fill your gasoline car with diesel, it ain't going to run. So you've got to purge what should not be there so that you can fill it with what is designed to be there, right? This is what Jesus does on the cross when he says it is finished what is he saying? The purging is finished. I have removed what should not be there and replaced it with what should be there, which is pre-fallen identity. How, do you, 
maybe I'm the only one, but as I've been reading through this lately, that's caused me to sit and weep at times. While I was still a sinner, he was purging me of that which I was and giving me without any merit on my behalf by my works what I really should be. And then I have the audacity to think I, by my works, can undo something that I didn't even get by my works in the first place. That's like buying, I don't know, it's like buying something from Walmart and trying to take it back to Target. They won't let you because you didn't get it from them. But that's how we see salvation. We see salvation as the Lord just gifted it to us, but then we think, we can return the gift by our works, which never even earned it in the first place. You can't do it. You couldn't work your way out of it if you wanted to. And people hate that because they're like, well, Josh, you're going to give people a license to sin. I've just got to give you the gospel. You can choose what you want to do with it. But the gospel says if you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. And I, as I said last week, if that causes you to want to go out and sin, I mean, that's, what Paul, that's why Paul has to say in Romans 6, should we keep sinning so grace may abound? Certainly not. He has to give that caveat because he just went through Romans 5, which says if one man's disobedience caused all to fall, another man's obedience causes all to be free from the fall. So then he goes from Romans 5 to Romans 6, and he preaches a gospel that is so freeing, he has to give the caveat, should we keep sinning so that that may abound? Certainly not. You've died to that. So he's saying he's not saying we shouldn't sin because now we're a new creation. He's saying we can't sin like we used to because the root identity has been obliterated. So he's saying, how can you, and he expounds, expounds upon this in Colossians, but he says, how can you go back and operate in an identity that actually doesn't exist anymore? You can't. That's why he says, should we go on sinning? Certainly not. Because that doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, so he purges, purges our sin from us. See how different this is from the gospel that we believed and the picture of the accomplishments of the cross that we had? To make the cross the appeasement of the anger of God is not only off course, it's brand new theology. Here, here, you have to have translations, if you believe that, taking massive leaps to make their narrative fit a text that says something completely different. If that's who God is, and you don't know Greek, which, nobody, I mean, who knows Greek? You know what I'm saying? So if you don't know Greek, the original text, what we have is English translations of a Greek text, which is great. I'm glad we have that, um, which is why, and I say this before, we have, I think it's four, either 450 translations or 4,500 translations, but I, I want to say it's 450. But either way, we have a lot of English translations. I think that is a great thing. Because to go from Greek to English is a massive step over a gaping canyon. You know what I'm saying? The, I, I, don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but the English language has, I believe, it's like one-thirtieth of the amount of words that Greek has. So it's, it's, just, it's a massive leap. So what we have here is translators taking the Greek and translated it, translating it into English. Now, here's the other issue with that. Not an issue, but here's the, the thing you have to think through. 
is that, for example, uh, the word love, the word love, um, agape, um, let, let's say salvation, salvation, sozo, that word could be translated in at least 10 different English words. The Greek word sozo, it means to be made whole, it means to be made well, it means to be healed, it means to be preserved, it means to be saved from destruction. It has all these different meanings. So as a translator, you have to take the scripture, take what you know about God, and then translate it in the way that you think is the best way to translate this word which is why we have so many different translations, which is why it's a great thing that we do have so many different translations because I read this from, I think it's, it's uh, John Walton, um, who is a theologian in Oxford, I want to say. Either way, he said this, every translation carries a, at least a piece of the agenda of the translator. It just does. And I'm okay with that. That's, that's fine with me. If I was going to translate the scripture, I would definitely translate it through God is love. I mean, I just would. You know what I'm saying? Which we should. But here's why I'm saying all this. If, if we approach Scripture with the idea that God is the mean, angry, bad guy, then we're going to have translations that slide toward the mean, angry, bad guy. Hello, King James. Okay? We just are. Or if you believe in the Reformed thinking, then you're going to have translations like the ESV, that translates everything to reform thinking. You just are. This is, you know what I'm saying? Um, but what the Greek is telling us, what the writers are telling us, is that this is a God who so loved you that he expressed it through Jesus by dying on your behalf. And in his death, not only gave you unlimited sorry so that you could say sorry all the time when you mess up, he purged from you the identity that didn't belong there. I, that, that's love. That he was willing to go to the cross that he didn't deserve so that we could get the identity that our works didn't deserve but our design did deserve. All right, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, and we'll start at verse 5. Um, 1 through 4 is awesome too, but it would just take a long time to go through that. So we'll start at verse 5. Um, and I'm going to attempt to go to 18, 5 through 18. For God did not place the coming world, it's talking about new creation, for God did not place the coming world of which we speak under the government of angels, but the scriptures affirm, now this is, he's quoting Psalm 8 right here coming up, what is man that you would even think about him or care about Adam's race? Talk about us. You made him... Lower than the angels for a little while. You placed your glory and honor upon his head as a crown, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, for you have placed everything under his authority. This means that God has left nothing outside the control of them, even if presently we have yet to see this accomplished. But we see Jesus, who as a man lived a short time lower than the angels, and has now been crowned with glorious honor because of what he suffered in his death. Ready for this? For it was by God's grace that he experienced death's bitterness on behalf of everyone. For now 
He towers above all creation, for all things exist through him and for him. I never do this, but y'all say all things. All things. All things. If it's all things, how many things are left outside of that? All things exist through him and for him. Why? Because he experienced death's bitterness on behalf of them. And that God made him pioneer of our salvation, perfect through his sufferings, for this is how he brings many sons and daughters to share in his glory. Jesus, the Holy One, makes us holy. Uh-oh. Huh? I thought holiness was about us being perfect. Uh, no? Jesus makes us holy. Love that. And as sons and daughters, we now belong to the same Father, so He is not ashamed or embarrassed to introduce us as His brothers and sisters. For He said, you ready for this? He said, this is quoting the Old Testament, I will reveal who you really are to my brothers and sisters, and I will glorify you with praises in the midst of the congregation. Who is he talking about? Let y'all figure that out later. And my confident rest in God. And again, he says, here I am, one with the children Yahweh has given me. Last few verses. Since all his children, I, I, I can't stress how much I need, I need y'all to listen to this right here. Since all his children have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human to fully identify with us. And he did this. Why? You ready? Because God was hateful. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds against the power of death, who holds against us the power of death. And by embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their entire lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of death. For it is clear he did not do this for the angels, but for all the sons and daughters of Abraham. And this is why he had to be a man, to take hold of our humanity in every way. He made us his brothers and sisters and became our merciful and faithful king priest before God. Ready? As the one who removed our sins, Hamartea, sin, as the one who removed our sin to make us one with him. He suffered and endured every test and temptation. Why? so that he could help us every time we pass through ordeals of life. We, we could spend four years on those few verses right there. Why did Jesus die? To remove our sin and make us one with him. And I would maybe put right there, again. Let me break down a couple words real quick. Verse 5, it's talking about new creation, as in the beginning, under the government of man, when it says, God will not place the coming world. He's talking about new creation. Um, which is yet another picture of God with redemption on his mind and not starting over. God will place 
under, or not, excuse me, God will not place the coming world of which we speak under the government of angels, but, and then he quotes about man having the government over it in Psalm 8. So he's taking us back to how things started. Jesus and humanity in this are one through the incarnation. I, I, I think I said this Tuesday night, but any service that we go through that doesn't in some way, shape, or form mention the incarnation has missed it. And, and not only do we not talk about the incarnation a lot, we never talk about it. I don't know if I ever heard a sermon on the incarnation other than Christmas. The incarnate, I heard a theologian say uh, this morning, actually, I heard a theologian say, um, and he was quoting one of the early church fathers. I want to say it was um, uh, Origen. Origen um, was the early church father he was quoting. But he said, he just weeps, Origen. He weeps when he thinks about the God who created everything being a baby crying to be fed by his mother. So John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Apart from Him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus was the artisan, it says in Proverbs, the artisan that when God had the idea to create, put pen to paper. I, I, I would argue the one that said, let there be throughout Genesis 1, in my opinion, is Jesus the Son. Because He is the Word of God. It's my opinion. It's a lot of other theologians' opinion. You don't have to agree with that. It really doesn't matter. But that, that Jesus that designed everything is now in the hands of humanity through the incarnation. He goes to the cross not at the hands of God, at the hands of humanity. As a human to fully identify with us. If he becomes Adam, if he becomes Adam, or the second Adam, but he becomes Adam, to go to the cross and die, why does he do that? Was there not another way? Let me, let me ask you like this. Why, why wasn't it enough for us to just repent? Think, I mean, think, just think for a second. Just, just hang with me. Let me mess with your mind for a little bit. If it was our actions that caused an angry God to send his son to the cross, if it was just our actions, then why couldn't we just say, I'm sorry? And God just say, all right, that's good enough. He's God. I mean, why? I mean, seriously, like, do we ever think about this? In, in the Old Testament, he tells them their actions are forgiven when they sacrifice animals. So why don't we just keep the sacrificial animals going? Because that'll forgive our sins. We got plenty of sheep and goats and all that stuff here around here. Why don't we just do that? Do, do you, know, you know what I'm saying? So when we look at the cross, what we have to ask ourselves is why this instead of all the other stuff that we were doing before? It wasn't that our sins were not forgiven before the cross, because they were. Multiple times God forgave Israel's sins without the death of his son. So, so it was not this that was to undo our actions. Our actions could be forgiven with I'm sorry. 
with the death of an animal, whatever you want to say. That means this must have meant something way more than just appeasement of our actions. If he, let me just read this, let me just read this. I can't say it as good as Athanasius. So this is the right, if you, in the, on the incarnation, Athanasius written around 300 AD. Let me, let me just read his words real quick. He says this. Let me start back here. Let me start back here. Y'all good? It's only 11, so we got tons of time. <clears throat> he says this. He, Jesus, took our body, and not only so, but he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of human father, a pure body untainted by intercourse with man. He, the mighty God, the artisan of all, himself, prepared this body in the virgin as a temple for himself and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. Thus, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death instead of all, and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, listen, so that in his death all might die, and the law of death therefore be abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that which it was appointed, it was therefore voided of its power for men. This he did that he might turn again the incorruption of men who had turned back to corruption and make them alive through his death by the approbation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. Now check this out, last one. Thus, because of all this Jesus did, thus he would make death disappear from them as utterly as straw in fire. Because of this, Jesus came to this because of the fall, not because of our actions. Our actions came from the fall. Jesus came to the cross as a man to undo, let me just be very clear, the fall. He did not come so that we could be forgiven every time we act in the fall. He came so that he could undo the fall altogether. What does that mean? Right? We've never thought about this. What does it mean that Jesus has undone the fall? He, he came because we were heading in a direction of non-existence. Because to bear the image of God is to exist. To stop bearing the image of God is to lose our existence. We exist for the image. Let us make man in our image, is what he said. What's up, man? Let us make man in our image. You start losing that image, and all of a sudden you start losing existence. So men tumbling into non-existence, God says, I refuse to let them go into non-existence. Therefore, I'm going to come into their non-existence, and I'm going to pull it back into existence through this. By this, death is irrelevant now. By this, the fall is irrelevant for them now. By this, Adam is irrelevant for them now, and they exist for one thing. This is what he says. For all things exist through him and for him. 
What? So now you have to start looking at your lawnmower uh, people that are cutting your grass, the trash people, the male people, painters, artists, movies. You have to start looking at all this stuff and now say there is no separation of here's God's world and here's the big bad world right here too. No, all things exist through and for Him. So now you start watching Frozen 2 and see the Lord in it, whether or not they knew they were operating in a place where they were showing someone the image of God. Right? What does this do? I told you all Tuesday night, I was listening to a Coldplay song at the zoo. Fix You. It was a good song. But just in that, I could just hear the pleasure of the Lord in the melody. This is my melody. They may not know it. They may not be using it like that, but it's mine. You start looking at people, and every time somebody operates in a... I mean, we went to uh, this, this reading fest for Veda, Friday night, Thursday night, Friday night. And this little girl lost her mom. So she's standing there. She's about 10, and uh, she can't find her mom. Well, Jordan's like, you know, mom mode. And uh, she was like, we're going to find your mom. Like, that's not even a question. And so we find the mom, and the mom was like, oh, I was coming to find you. And I was like, coming to find, like, you know, but anyway, and uh, so that's not the story. But so, so Jordan is taking this little girl to her mom. We would say, man, that's awesome. That's great. But if all things exist through him and for him in that moment, Jordan was making a statement that you're going to find your paternity. You know what I'm saying? All things exist through and for him. We, we don't see this. We don't see this. And anything not operating in that is not operating in Adam. It's operating in a lie because that's not what it is. But we can't say it's operating in Adam because guess what? This makes Adam non-existent. So now we see people not enslaved to Adam and not enslaved to the devil. But they're enslaved to a lie. What's the difference? One of those, we've got to bust our tail to get them free from their chains. The other one, all we've got to do is be so convinced of who we are that it dares them to know who they are. That's why I have said for four years that evangelism, the number one way we can do evangelism, and I'm pretty sure I told this, but the number one way we can do evangelism is to be convinced of who we are. You can do a megaphone at the street corner all day long, but I promise you, you being convinced that you are actually a son or daughter of God that he sees as perfect, that he sent Jesus to the cross, not out of obligation, but out of desire. If you see that, I promise you, you're going to affect a lot more people than standing on a street corner saying, turn or burn. Because, I, I mean, you've got to really start questioning that theology as well. Too soon. All right. So, verse 11, uh, no, no, verse 10, verse 10, verse 10. Nope. No, 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 no. Verse 8. And he's quoting this. I want you to see, see this right here. Uh, here's what Psalm 8 says where he quotes. Now, and I'm saying he, it might have been she. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But he says, What is man that you would even think about him or care about Adam's race? You made him lower than angels for a little while. There, there's a huge issue with me on that verse. Uh, that is what the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament says. The Hebrew original text 
says this, What is man that you would even think about him or care about Adam's race? You made him lower than God for a little while. That's what the Hebrew says, Elohim, to be exact. So a Greek copyist in the Septuagint felt it too much to say that man was, for a short time, made lower slightly than God. So instead, the Septuagint, which Hebrews follows really closely, renders it angels so that in the next part, when we talk about redemption, through Jesus, the best we get is joined with angels. But if it says Elohim, like it does in the Hebrew, redemption means that we've not just been brought to the level of the angels still lower than God, we've been brought back into the dance with Father, Son, and Spirit. That is a big, big chunking difference. If, if all we've been, and listen, this is what, this is what I believe. You know, it was some, what do you think is going to happen when we get to heaven? We would tell them we're going to have wings, we're going to be able to fly. We say that because we think we're going to be like angels. And, and unfortunately, that's cool. If you're going to be like an angel, you're going to stop way short of who you actually are now. I'm not, seated, I'm not co-seated with angels, I'm co-seated with God. Right? I'm not one with Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel, not you, but, you know, the angel Gabriel. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not one with Gabriel. I'm one with Yahweh. This isn't some kind of crazy theology. This is biblical theology. And if you don't believe that, you're not believing biblical theology. Well, brother, you're getting wild. Maybe we're not getting wild enough. You know what I'm saying? But, but if, if that's the case, then when Jesus dies... He doesn't just raise us to the level, still lower, but right there with the angels so that we can all hang out all day. He raises us back into, in the beginning, there was a spin, and they said, let us make man in our image. And there was a space created in the Trinity where Adam was placed, and there was a spin, and then there was Eve, and she was placed, and there was a spin. And how it was designed was Seth, and, all, and Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and all the kids are all brought into the spin, and the spin just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you subdue the earth. That was the design. Where things went off course was when Adam and Eve fell into non-existence. The action caused the falling. But Jesus didn't come to undo the action. Jesus came to undo the fall altogether. So, so when it talks about Elohim, slightly lower than Elohim, if it says that, like it does, then we've been brought back into that dance. Now, verse 9, part B, uh, when it says uh, God has left nothing outside of the control of, some of your translation, and mine actually says this, outside of the control of his son, that, that is, that's one of those translation leaps I was talking about earlier. It's actually got in the Greek. This means that God has left nothing outside of the control of them, talking about Adam's sons. The translation sometimes says his son because he became them. Okay, but just to make that clear. So, uh, for it was by God's grace, by God's grace, that, uh, that he experienced death's bitterness on behalf of everyone. That word grace is charis in the Greek, and that means kindness also means grace, not anger. So that means for God, it was by God's 
kindness that he experienced death's bitterness on behalf of everyone. Okay, so we're starting to build something here. And I'm actually almost done. That he experienced death for everyone. The Greek word for uh, everyone is pos. It means all. It means every kind. It could be translated every human being ever. That's what the Greek could be translated there. So, let me just... It was by God's kindness that he experienced death's bitterness on behalf of every human being ever. <laughs> That's, uh, you, this is amazing stuff. Okay, so I'm just giving you a big Greek class right now. In verse 10, verse 10, and then I'm almost done, he says, For now he towers above all creation, for all things exist through him and all things for him. When it says that, it's, uh, it's the same word pos, which means all, so everything. And when it says many sons and daughters, the Greek word is paulus, paulus, and it means all or many. So it's connotating that however the amount was affected by Adam's fall is the amount Jesus' salvation also affects. That's what that's saying there. Romans 5 says the same thing. Um, And even Romans 3, it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When the writer of Hebrews is saying... Uh, this is how he brings many sons and daughters to share in his glory. He's saying those affected by the fall is the same amount as those now affected by the cross. Okay. Y'all still good? I know this is a lot. I know this is a lot. <clears throat> Verse 12, he tells us he's come to reveal who we really are. Thanks for the, the backup on the message, Jesus. Um, Verse 14 Jesus became Adam's fall for the purposes of dying so that in Adam's, or excuse me, in dying as Adam's fall, he might annihilate the fall and its powers and its effects. Okay? Verse 14. Let me just read this one more time, and then I'm going to expound upon this. Since all his children have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human to fully identify with us, with flesh and blood, with sharks, human nature. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate its effects and the effects of the accuser that holds against us the power of death. So by experiencing what we were designed to experience, we get to experience what we were always designed to experience, which was in him from the beginning. Okay? The reason I'm just going through all this Greek stuff is just so y'all know this is what the Greek says, and this is honestly what the English says. We just haven't read it like that. Verse 17, last word. He removed, verse 17, let me just read it like it says. This is why he had to be a man, to take hold of our humanity in every way. He made us his brothers and sisters and became our merciful and faithful king priest before God as the one who removed our sin, hamartia, sin, to make us one with him. He removed our fall to make humanity one with him again. That's what he says. So what was the purpose? Why, Why am I reading this? was the purpose, to go back to the beginning, Jonathan Edwards versus Athanasius, was the purpose of this the anger at our actions or was the purpose of this, and I quote, to make us one with him? If this, so so now why would God make us one with him? Number one, the Trinity existed before creation. Y'all with me? Every denomination believes that, so y'all are good. Okay? The Trinity existed before creation. They weren't lonely. They, the, the Trinity existed in community before creation. Y'all good? Amen. Okay, awesome. If that's the case, why is Adam created? 
God's not lonely. In fact, if we read throughout, I, I, I said this last week, if we read throughout the Old Testament, each of them are glorifying each other. So he's not in need of somebody to glorify him. They're each glorifying each other. Jesus is saying, give glory to the Son. The Son's saying, give glory to God. Uh, the Holy Spirit's saying, give glory to both of them. And they're both responding back to it. So, so it's not because there's any kind of lack. It's not because any of them lack glory. So why on earth does Adam come into the picture except for desire? There's no other explanation. There's no obligation. There's nothing missing in God. The only reason for Adam to come into existence, and when I say Adam, man, us, the only reason for us to come into existence is because something within Father, Son, and Spirit said, we want to make room to reproduce this in something else. So like I said last week, Jordan and I were completely fulfilled in Jordan and I, yet we made the decision to share in our joint covenant with another Veda. And now she has been brought in, and she's not something way lower down here that if we have time to get to it, we get to it. Right? Because that's how we see God. That's not what it is. She's now been brought into the same place as Jordan and I. So last night we went to the movie theater. Guess who went to the movie theater? Not just Jordan and I. Jordan, I, and Veda. We sat in the same seats, literally. She wanted to sit in our seats with us. So, so, you know what I'm saying? But, like, this sounds really childish, and it is. It's not that hard to grasp. It is hard to grasp when we think through things like we've all been taught to think through things. That's not God's agenda. God's agenda for his word is not to tell us how angry he is. God's agenda for his word is actually to tell us that he should be angry at us, but he's not because he loves us with such a desire that he brought his son to this so that we could be brought back into that. There's no reason. In fact, there's no reason for the cross because they're completely fulfilled in each other. They had no obligation to save man. They had no obligation to save you and I. Y'all good? I mean, like, there was, God had zero obligation. He told them, if you eat from this tree, you will die. And guess what they did? They made the conscious decision to eat from the tree. So God would have been completely justified in saying, I told you not to do it, but you did it anyway, so have fun. Why go to the cross? Unless he's not as angry as we thought. Unless he's not saying, I just got to beat the snot out of something. What if he's actually saying, I'm going to get my kids back? Because something in him. Do you see what happened in this? This is, this is people consider this heretical. I think it's heretical to not believe this. But anyway. In the Trinity, God makes space for Adam, which means if Adam is not in that space, God is missing something. Not because we, they chose to design it like that. You see what I'm saying? If something happened to Veda, there would be a giant gaping place in Jordan and I that Veda was designed to feel that she's no longer feeling anymore. We would mourn that. You know what I'm saying? Why would we mourn it? Because we were, complete, what's up, my, we were completely fulfilled before her. Why wouldn't we just go back to being completely fulfilled without her? Because now the paradigm's changed. The paradigm once was Jordan and I enjoying our covenant. But we made the conscious decision to make room in that covenant permanently for another. And once she fills that part of the covenant, 
permanently that we decided to make that space for, if you remove her then from that space, now there is a gaping hole where she is supposed to be. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he designs it in one moment to be like that, it does not change. So Jesus came to the cross as the expression of the Trinity saying there is something missing where Adam, where humanity is designed to feel and we refuse to live the rest of eternity with that gaping hole. So instead, we're going to go get our kids back and whether or not they like it kicking or screaming, we're going to bring them back into the dance until they know who they are. That, that, that's the God of the Bible. Prove it. Go start in Genesis, read the Revelation, and see it through this, and tell me if you don't make sense of things. Well, I'm, bro, I've just been reading my Bible, and nothing makes sense. Probably because you've been reading it through God being angry. <laughs> you know? When you see... Uh, let me back up. That's why Paul in Romans 2, 4 says this, that it is the kindness of God that leads humanity to come to their senses. Repent. Not the anger. It was the kindness of God that imagined the incarnation to get us back into this man. What, what designed us in the beginning? The kindness of God. Not the obligation. The kindness of God spun out Adam, you and I. Which means the way we're going to get back into that is not anger. It's the kindness. It's what originated us. Genesis 1 Every single thing that God makes that's living, he says, I'm going to give you the seed to reproduce of the same kind. So if you plant a, a, a sunflower, you're going to get a sunflower. That's, that's how God designed creation. If humans procreate, guess what they're going to create? A human. So this is how we're designed. Which means the seed of what we were birthed in has to be the seed that gets us back in. It was kindness that spun us out, which means it's kindness that's got to get us back in. We didn't make the decision to be made. <laughs> right? None, not one of us made the decision to be made. I don't care what science says. The Big, the big Bang thing that blows my mind at the insanity. But anyway, that's what I was talking to a scientist. One, uh, well, not a scientist. It wants to be a scientist one day. And I was like, here's my thing. Where did the two atoms come from? And they're like, well, you know, it's, I'm like, I, I, but it's like, it had to come from something. But anyway, like maybe there was a Big Bang, but you better believe God was the one that put the two atoms in there. So um, there wasn't. There wasn't. Somebody's going to send me so many messages about that. I don't believe in the Big Bang. But anyway, so bring it back. So we didn't make that decision. We didn't make the decision to be born, to be made. You know what I'm saying? And even our parents really didn't make the decision. They thought they made the decision. They didn't. You were, you, were, you were designed in Christ. God knew, tells Jeremiah, I knew you intimately before you were born. So, so it wasn't your parents that made the decision to pop you out. It was the imagination of the Trinity that knew you before you took a breath. And we think that if we, if we didn't have the power to get us here, you better believe we don't have the power to forfeit what got us here. No matter what Veda does, she cannot change the fact that she's my daughter. No matter what she does, she can't change her DNA. She can run and run and run and run and hate and hate and hate and hate and turn against us all she wants. But if you do a DNA test, hers and mine and Jordan's are going to be exactly the same every single time. We do not see each other like that. 
we see if I run, all of a sudden my DNA has changed, and that is not the gospel. If you run, the gospel is he'll chase you down until he finds you. And, and that's, I'm not talking about universalism. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about universalism is God just taking a big sweeping hand and saying, let's just get them all in heaven and just scooping them all in. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about how we were designed. Y'all with me? Like, like there, there will be, unfortunately, there's going to be people that no matter how many times they are told they are loved, they are loved, that are at some point just going to reject it and lose humanity. But in my opinion, that's going to be the few. Can you prove it? I mean, yeah. Can you prove it's not? How, who am I to think that Adam's fall can affect the majority, but Christ's obedience is only going to affect a handful that repeat a prayer? That, I mean, that's the, same, that's the same type of thinking. I'm just saying that in hope. I'm not saying that because I got any. I'm saying that I hope everybody is. I, I hope I'm wrong. I'm saying I think there's going to be people who miss it. I hope I'm absolutely wrong. You see what I'm saying? I, I really do. I hope the, I get to the Lord one day and he says, you didn't know what you were talking about. You were wrong. I got all my kids back. I hope, I hope, that's, what, I hope that's the case. But in my current line of thinking, there's going, to, there's going to be people who deny Jesus. There's going to be people who deny that. But you better believe, and I've said this the past few weeks, that after the Lord has shown us this, in Colombia anyway, for them to get to the place where they say no to him, they're going to have to go through millions of opportunities to say yes first. And that's where we're making the shift in our church. We're not going to say, if you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this, welcome to the family. We're going to say, I don't care what you do, you're in the family. And they're going to have to make the decision. We're not going to make it for them. We're not going to deny people. We're going to have to make, I'm going to make people make the decision to look the goodness of God in the eye and say no. Because I don't think anybody can do that. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going to make Columbia, whether they like it or not, I'm going to make them look the goodness of God in the eye. How? Because I'm going to start operating like I know I'm the goodness of God. Because I have not done that. But when people look at me, I want them to see such the image of the kindness of God that they stare God in the eyes and have to say no, because I don't think they will. When you see God's character, thus the incarnation... In Matt, go ahead and come up here. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you see God's character, thus the incarnation incorrectly, it dictates every other piece of your belief system. So, so just for example, if the God of the Bible is what we've been talking about for a month now, not only is it hermeneutically, which is interpretation of Scripture, not only is it hermeneutically wrong, it's impossible to believe creation is destined for destruction. If God is love, it's impossible to see people by what they do rather than what the cross says they are. It's impossible to compartmentalize worship. Everything is worship if all things exist through and from Him. So, so your secret place is just a piece of your secret place. It's not everything. It's a big part of your secret place, but you doing your job is the secret place. You eating your dinner is the secret place. You sleeping is your secret place. 
You hanging out with your friends is your secret place. You making coffee is the secret place. All of this, if all things exist through and for Him, everything becomes worship. All of it. Hannah's making a podcast about different restaurants around town, and that becomes worship because it's existing in and through and for Him. We've, we've got to stop making this compartmentalized. Like Sunday at 10 a.m. is my worship, and then Monday's my job, and then Tuesday's my job, and Wednesday's my job, Thursday's my job, Friday's my job, Saturday's my Sabbath. Yeah. I'm like, what'd you do on your Sabbath? You got a turn. All right. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then Sunday morning, I'm going to worship again. No, 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 no. All of it is worship. So now, when you show up to the secret place, or let me say this, what happens if you're really sleepy and one morning you just decide to press snooze on the alarm and you sleep and then you go to work and you misread your Bible that morning? If you see the secret place as that part and you see God as angry, you're going to go through the whole day beating yourself up because you messed up. How many of y'all have done that over the past few months? I have. You know what I'm saying? Recently. But if everything exists in and through and for Him, you driving on your way to work is just as much the secret place as you spending time studying Greek. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm saying we need to elevate everything else to the level we've made this. It's not, it's not making the secret place nothing. It's making everything else the secret place. Lauren, when you're painting... Every time you paint, you're not just painting because it's fun. It is fun, but you're painting because that's worship. That's what the Lord put Rachel, same thing. I mean, all of y'all. There's so many like artists and creative people and like dreams in this room that you think those things are just like what you want to do. Lawnmower equipment. You're here. You know what I'm saying? So, so when you're selling that stuff, it's like, man, I just, like, this. you don't think this, but I'm just, like, man, this job is just ruining me, blah, blah, blah. If you compartmentalize, that's what you'll think. But if you make everything worship, then you'll say, me selling this lawnmower is an opportunity for me to show them an image they've not seen before. Everything starts to shift. You're, you have the top sales in the country just about, right? Or in the company? You know why? It's not because you're a good salesman, even though you probably are. It's because you have an image that people look at and say, I want something from that. This, I mean, this changes everything. When you guys are playing music, playing live music, no matter what you're playing, if the, if the frequency is leaving your mouth and you are a son or daughter of God, guess what's leaving your mouth? The frequency of a son and daughter of God. Veda doesn't have to be reading her Bible for us to see worship in her. She could be singing a Frozen song, and I feel just as much in worship as that. Let's change, let, me, let me just read something to you so I can cry for a minute. I just got to look it up. Uh, me and, uh, Lord, help me not cry. Me and Veda were on our way. Where were we? We were going uh, somewhere Friday. Oh, oh, we were on our way to the park. And because uh, Friday, me and her just hang out and let Jordan kind of do whatever she wants to do and uh, give her a little break. And so um, we were on our way to the park, and she loves uh, Aladdin. She just loves me. I watched the real Aladdin yesterday, I fell asleep halfway through it. It's not that good. Um, it's not good. But um, I think it's because I've seen the cartoon so many times that it's like, it's just, I can't. But 
Um, and they add too much story to it. It's like, just stick to what we got. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, all that being said, this song comes on from the movie, and I'm driving, and I'm trying to hold it together. I start weeping. Because if you want to know my story over the past four years, this song says it better than any other song ever written. So let me just read, let me just read the lyrics. I, I, just think about this, okay? Think about this. All things exist through him and for him. The writers of this, I think it's Alan, no, it's not Alan Megan. He's a brilliant writer. But anyway, the writers of this, they didn't know what they were writing. But he did. So he says, I can show you the world. Shining, shimmering, splendid. Tell me when did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes, take you wonder by wonder, over, sideways, and under on a magic carpet ride. All right. But look, I'll just hear this. Listen to this. A whole new world, a new fantastic point of view, no one to tell us no or where to go or say we're only dreaming. A whole new world, a dazzling place I never knew. But when I'm way up here, it's crystal clear that now I'm in a whole new world with you. Now, listen to this next verse. Unbelievable sights, indescribable feeling, soaring, tumbling, free-willing through an endless diamond sky. A whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. A hundred thousand things to see. Hold your breath. It gets better. I'm like a shooting star. I've come so far. Listen to this. When it, uh, when it hit this line, I started weeping. I can't go back to where I used to be. A whole new world with new horizons to pursue. I'll chase them anywhere. There's time to spare. Let me share this whole new world with you. Right? You hear what I'm saying? I hear, I'm just weeping. I haven't wept to a song in a long time. And this, this isn't on K-Love. I don't listen to Kate Lemon's good. Um, I've heard Casting Crowns praise you in the storm millions of times. Um, but Lord, talk about during COVID year. I don't know this for sure. I'd love to know the facts of how many times they played praise you in the storm during the year of COVID. I would love to know those statistics. But I would guarantee you it would be millions. But anyway, shout out. Um, but 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 do you do you hear how this starts to shift things? Because I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this song. Instead of seeing Aladdin and Jasmine floating through the sky, which is, I mean, it's a cool scene. But instead, I'm just like, I, I can't go back to where I used to be. This is a whole new world. A new fantastic point of view. Nobody to tell me no or where to go or say I'm just dreaming. In this, it's impossible to see yourself as anything other than flawless in his eyes and included in the spin of God. Not because you've earned it, but because that's why God designed you in the first place. Why, why are you perfect in the eyes of God? Because you repeated a prayer? Or is it because when you cut open your DNA and study it, it says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased.
And this is going to set some people free. Because some of y'all have been beating yourself up because you keep struggling with the same stuff. And you thought the way that you were going to be free from struggling with the same stuff was saying no. And I think the way you're going to be free is by believing that stuff couldn't affect your identity if you tried. Well, Josh, won't you think, don't you think people will keep going? No, I think people are finally going to believe who they are. Why, why would I settle for something impure if I believe I'm only worthy of pure things? Why, why would I do something to escape a reality that's actually everything I've ever been designed for? You see, you see how this starts to change? I, you, you know why people are on drugs? Not because they want to be on drugs. It's because it started out with an escape. Something in them said, I've got to escape this reality. So is the way that we get people off drugs to tell them to just stop saying no to drugs? Because there's still going to be the hole in them that says, I've got to escape this reality. What if instead we shifted the reality to this is what you were designed for? Then there would be no place in them that needs to escape anything. I don't know. I told the Lord this week, and then I'm almost done. We'll just pray for a minute. But I told the Lord this week, that A, I, I, and this is just me being vulnerable. I don't, I told him, and this is a lie, so this is part of everything I just said preaching to the choir, but I told him, I don't think anybody understands this. I, I told him, I was like, sometimes it feels like, not with you guys, just in general, sometimes it feels like I'm preaching this stuff and I know what you're saying, but I, I can't communicate it. it it's like, I, I, how, how do I communicate this through the barriers of thinking. You know what I mean? How do I communicate this without people hearing certain pieces of it and getting so bogged down in tradition that they miss the whole thing? And a couple of weeks ago, the Lord said, your job is not to address, I think I mentioned this to you guys, your job is not to preach knowing how you're going to have to respond to the religious spirit. Your job is to preach what I say and that will set the religious spirit free. So if you're hearing any of this stuff, like, like, like even when I just said, I think the majority, I, I hope the majority are going to make it. When I said that, there was a large group of people either watching this or listening to this later, or maybe in this room, that had kickback in your mind. Why? Huh? I mean, seriously. When did that become a bad thing? Man, I, man, I... I, I choose to believe new creation. I choose to believe the people that we have said are doomed are going to be so sought after by the Father until He finds them, whether or not I ever see it. That's what I choose to believe. But like, we, we, we've got to change particularly our view of the Father. And this is how I want to end this. We, oh man. We've got to change I can, I can just feel the Father's heart right now. We, we've got to change how we see Abba. Maybe some of you grew up with a dad that wasn't present. Maybe some of you grew up with a dad that was present and, and wasn't good. Um, maybe some of you grew up with a great dad. I, I, we have the blessing of having a great dad and great parents. But... Maybe you didn't have that, and it's really difficult for you to see God as a good father because you don't know what a good father looks like. In the Luke 15 story, 
which I can't get out of, of this son who had run off, wasting everything, coming around the corner, ready to repeat this prayer that he wants to be a servant. Can you imagine, I know it's a parable, but can you imagine walking around the corner thinking you're about to get beat? And instead you look and see dad running. With tears pouring down his face. My son is home. Why haven't we told people about that God? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Why haven't we told people about Papa who is sitting on the porch, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've said, no matter who they voted for, he's sitting on the porch waiting for them to run so that he can sprint with everything that he's got saying, Adam, that rejected the Trinitarian spin of intimacy is now being brought back. Whether or not he likes it, if he's kicking or screaming, bring my robe, bring my ring, and bring my shoes. My son is home. That is Yahweh. That is Papa. It's not anger. It's love that is so furious for you and I that he refuses to let us die in our misery. This, this is, I, I, I don't know how to communicate it. So Holy Spirit, I, I just, y'all just pray with me for a second. Holy Spirit, would you just communicate this right now? Yahweh, how how do we undo hundreds of years of seeing you as a father who was who was disappointed, who was angry, who was mean, who was hateful? How do we undo that and shift things? not just slightly, but in the opposite direction, that actually you were so loving that you sent your only son. What does it look like that our kids are going to grow up in a framework of thinking that never has to question the goodness of God because all they know is the goodness of God. We have to sing songs to convince us you're never going to let us down. But if we can fix this in our generation, they'll never have to sing that song again. I weep when I hear, King of my heart, you are good, you are good, you're never going to let me know. I weep. And the reason I'm weeping is because I'm trying to convince myself that that's reality. Our kids will never play that song because that's the only reality they'll ever know. But Holy Spirit, would you, would you teach this to us? Would you walk with us through this? Let us wake up in the morning with prayers like, Lord... Let, I want to hear the conversation right now between Father, Son, and Spirit. 
I want to dance the dance with Father, Son, and Spirit. When we're at work, I want to stock these shelves with Father, Son, and Spirit. Let, let me ask this. Y'all keep your eyes closed. Um, but let me ask you this. How many of you in this room, if you're being honest, and this isn't going to be a repeated prayer situation, but how, how many of you in this room have in some way, shape, or form seen God as angry your whole life? How many of you in this room? If you're being honest, the reason you have struggled with the secret place, the reason you have struggled with all this stuff is because you thought he was mad at you. Yeah, awesome. Majority, thanks. I, I just pray right now over everybody in the room, particularly those who have had this view of you, because this is mine, that whatever it looks like for you to rewire us, whatever it looks like for you to reroot and unroot, whatever that means, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace right now to do that. Would you give us the grace to trust you in that process? Would you give us the grace to know and be known? Would you give us the grace to taste and see, maybe for the first time in our life, that you are good? Let us start reading stuff like Song of Songs, and instead of it being mind-blowing, let us start reading stuff like that and say, yep, that makes sense. Let us read things like the book of John, and instead of getting to the end of it, say, how in the world does this fit within theology? Instead, let us read things like the book of John and say, this makes absolute sense with who I know God to be. Let us see everything as worship. Everything. When we go to eat lunch today, it's worship. And let us see people as bought. We're going to love Columbia. This goes right back to the message Matt preached. We're going to love Columbia because we have experienced he who is love. Yahweh, we honor you. We love you in your name.